0: Joseph. And I'm Nick. And this is Fish Jelly.
1: CCC. How are you? Good. How are you? Okay. We're a COVID-free household again. No more COVID. I have a residual cough.
0: Uh Uh-huh. It's gotten better. Yeah. Yeah. I suspect I'll have it for a while. It feels like it's in there. Uh Uh-huh. But people say they have symptoms for weeks after. Yeah. So... That's What do you have to say about COVID?
1: Resign to your fate. Well, I mean... It didn't kill me, so here we are. I mean, you know, I think the anxiety of it it has lessened after having it. You know, granted, we're both vaxxed and boosted and blah, blah, blah. But, uh, yeah, it it felt... It it was a very swiftly moving cold, is what it felt like for me.
0: Well, yeah, I think the anxiety of two years of evading...
1: To varying degrees, right? After a certain point, it was like, well, fuck it. Like, Well, after Omicron, I think it was very clearly... Because everybody started getting it then. Well, yeah.
0: I mean, yeah. Well, after getting vaccinated, I felt less um, fear. And then after getting boosted and then going on two major... I mean, I went on two cruises mm-hmm. in the past five, six months. So then I felt like, well, I'm doing pretty good if I haven't had it yet. And then, and then the Omicron surge passed and I still hadn't, neither of us had had it. So it was a little anticlimactic to get it sort of <laughs> on the tail end of a surge or at the, you know, but yeah, it felt I couldn't work. Well, there was like a four, the first four days, once I noticed, once I knew I was positive were pretty, those
1: were the most rough days. Yeah. You had at least two days where you were in bed almost all day. Yeah, I slept, like, all day and all night. And that I didn't have a day like that. And then my energy was very low. And there were two days where I didn't run, but that's it. But
0: it wasn't alarming. I wasn't alarmingly sick. Like, I thought I might have to go to the doctor. It just felt like I can't work. Like, I can't. And I'm not going to try. So then um, I, I think that made it seem more extreme that I had to announce that I'm out of the office because I'm sick. Mm-hmm. Had that not been an issue, I don't think... You know, I just... Yeah, like a fast-moving cold that just made me want to stay in bed all day. And the cough is a lot. Yeah, the cough was worse for you than me. Because, you know, my body felt... I had body aches, plus, like, my abdomen and my lower back were sore from coughing so much. But... <coughs> ooh. There she is. There she is. But moving on... uh Heidi Klum, we just watched a music video of hers. <laughs> so she recorded a song, which is supposed to be, like, the theme song for the upcoming season of Amer- America's Top Model Germany. That shit's still going on. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, Kylie Minogue was a judge on, like, a recent episode. Oh, okay. But Missed that. A guest judge. But Heidi recorded this, like, song as, like, a theme song, and then somehow Snoop, got, Snoop Dogg got on the track. Which as, he, then, as he's wont to do. <laughs> as he's wont to do. So, th- of course, that propelled it into making a music video. And all I have to say about that is I thought it was interesting because, first of all, Heidi Klum is 48 years old. She looks amazing. You know what's funny is, like, that song, if I didn't know who it was, of course, Snoop Dogg's voice is, like, recognize, very recognizable. So if I were, like, at the mall, if I were at the Beverly Center and walked by, like, fucking zara and heard that song playing it wouldn't occur to me that it's like it just sounds like everything else sure which is bad because i mean everything sounds like you know everything's so generic and musicality seems to take a backseat to whatever's trending and but for all these younger musicians out here making music they ought to be embarrassed because if heidi klum can get on the track and sound just the same mm-hmm. with this sort of little raggedy pop song that doesn't sound any different than anything else. And that lady's pushing 50, twice the age of some of these girls, and looks three times better. Yeah. She had more charisma. Like, just looking at her was captivating. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, she's stunning. And obviously, she's a very successful model. So, we're working with a different base. But still, I think it's funny that, um, I mean, the state of music really... Which I'm not super prepared to talk about, except that... It's sad. Very well, sad. As someone would say. But a lot of it has to do with age, I think. Like like where we are in our lives, right? We're more open to discovering new things the younger we are. Yeah, for sure.
1: So it's been a long time since I... Well, I think, It's very rare that I, I hear a new song I like. Well, I remember somebody discussing this somewhere about how the uh, the trend in music cha- like. That's significant to each era per se is how uh, different technology and how different sounds are produced and how, you know, everybody's chasing each other's tail. So you get this, this era of music where everything kind of sounds similar and it's of your youth, right? At at a certain point. And then you're always, the feelings that you're having listening to this music are distilled, kind of like distilled in amber, if you will, because music will never sound. It progresses to something else. And uh, Whereas, you know, you get samples and blah, blah, blah. But uh, it will never be that sound that it was in your youth when you were just kind of discovering life, if you will. So you're always in a state of mourning. uh, And every older generation complains right that music doesn't sound the same anymore that's how i feel and you know i cry very
0: easily like i cry at everything but one way to make me cry really quickly is like playing older music and it's not even sad music you can put on janet jackson's pleasure principle and if you have me with headphones on by myself i'll start crying and i think i'm mourning the feeling the loss of an era well that but also just the feeling of how excited i was to hear music at that point in my life And when I said I don't discover new songs, it's because I don't know, like, I don't seek out new music either. So, to be fair, I'm not saying all music nowadays is trash. I'm just saying that I'm, like, I'm not in a space where I'm really looking for new things. It's like I have my little playlist of 120 songs that I listen to on repeat. There are artists who I really like. Mm -hmm. I'm very much stuck in the 80s and 90s. Everything I listen to is from the 80s or 90s. Because that's when I remember really being excited about music so <clears throat> it's just interesting the,
1: the same things happened with cinema too because what you see is we're you know we're at an age where uh, the people that have the power to uh, generate projects are remaking stuff from their youth i.e the 80s well how many times
0: have we sat and been like oh i would love like i'm in the mood for like a 90s thriller yes or an 80s horror film and yeah i don't like like the nostalgia is what i'm craving but i don't want someone's interpretation of it like i i want the thing right
1: like which you know to be fair that's kind of why i like the new the batman because it it felt like it was doing its own thing but very much using the tools of a 90s serial killer thriller
0: well speaking of music today is jennifer hudson day in chicago
1: oh what do you
0: think of when you think of jennifer hudson
1: I think of I do it for the thrill, even if it kills. <laughs> Dangerous. <laughs> uh, w- w- of course, Dreamgirls, um, weight loss. Uh,
0: <laughs> I think about how... Effie. I, I think about how strong her voice is, but she never looks like she's struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, I also find myself often watching clips from... Um, she's... She, what's X Factor? No. Where well, she's the judge? The voice. The voice. She's the judge on The Voice. And there are a lot of videos of her sort of singing, like, in between scenes or when they're setting up for new um whatever. And just, like, her ability to just start singing is wild. Yeah, it's... Because it's... then you see other artists who, like, you ask them to sing and it's like a production. Mm-hmm. Like, someone like Mariah Carey just doesn't sing. Well... Her... It's always, like, she'll sing a little snippet that she's comfortable with or she'll... She'll spend 20, even like the car, the carpool karaoke is like, you know, everything she does is very produced. A lot of these singers, everything they sing is like, well, it has to be the right this. Well, right you key. know, your,
1: your vocal cords change, though, and
0: Mariah's vocal cords have changed. Sure, but a lot of artists don't have this ability. Like, Jennifer Hudson can just sing. That's true. How many, countless, like, you know, nighttime talk shows where they'll say, like, can you sing a little something? And she'll just belt out a, a standard
1: Yeah, but I, you know, I think of a lot of the movies she's been in, uh, many of which I think fall under the shadow of Dreamgirls, but, you know, The Incredible Defeat of Mr. and Pete, or, um, what was she in recently? Oh, Respect. I think she did what she could with it. I don't think she did a great
0: job playing Aretha Franklin. No. She sang the hell out of those songs, but her acting left me wanting. Well,
1: she, she... She, she, you leave feeling she's done an Aretha caricature mm-hmm. uh, almost but to be fair that's, they, they reduced Aretha to a PG-13 life of, as I said before and nobody has a PG-13 life so well, that's what that, that film is I feel like our secret
0: movie that character had a PG-13 life
1: <laughs> yes she did so we'll get to that later okay
0: moving on to RuPaul's Drag Race um, season 14 episode 9 Okay. Do you recall what the challenge was? Uh, it was a drag con panel. Right. So the topic was men's is Mm-hmm. So which
1: sounds like menses to me. Uh, but uh, I guess the drag queens didn't. Nobody made a joke about menses, But whatever.
0: So the queens. Well, so the mini challenge was they had to do like one of those photobomb photo shoots where they look all ugly and crazy and then take a photo that gets superimposed onto like something else. <clears throat> and Willow Pill won that challenge, I hated, so she was
1: allowed. I hated, I hated that challenge. They just
0: ugh. well, it just re- requires like I no- mean nothing. It requires Perfect. nothing. Like, well, what skill was utilized here except being silly, and... goofy, yeah. yeah? But Willow Pill won, so she was able to pick her team. So the remaining contestants split into two teams, and they each had to basically like do like a morning talk show monologue with where they talk about the topic of men. And um, I thought they did a pretty good job. The the team that Willow picked, I thought they did an excellent job. Yes, they did. Talking about like fatherhood and the other team, which was led by Bosco as the moderator, they talked more about like toxic masculinity. And that team had Georges and Ken, uh, what's Jasmine it? Kennedy. Jasmine Kennedy. And Georges and Jasmine Kennedy. And diabetes. Diabetty, who, whatever. Well, can we just <coughs> mention again how much I can't stand
1: diabetes? I cannot either. I just want to put her on mute. Shut the fuck up. Wow. Like, uh, I just,
0: it's been a minute since I really can't stand a contestant. Uh, something
1: about her. The the face, the, the words coming out of her mouth. The way she moves her mouth. I just, yeah. It would behoove you to be kind,
0: girl. Is <laughs> That would be a queen who, you know, because I've met a number of queens, and even though I don't care for them sometimes, it's just like, oh, hi, like, yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah. I don't need to tell you how I feel about you. Right. If I met Diabetty, I would I would tell her a thing or two. I would just <laughs> turn around. I don't need to look at you. <laughs> um, but anyway, so the winner of the challenge was Bosco. She's very funny. Yeah. Very smart. I like Bosco a lot. And she wisely chose to infuse a lot of references that she knew RuPaul would like, would like, and I thought, like, yeah, that's the key. That's the key. Like, RuPaul's a 60-year-old man who's obsessed with, like, po- older pop culture references.
1: But didn't know Dale uh, Buzio. <laughs> yeah, Bosco didn't know
0: who Dale Buzio was. But, um, yeah, so Bosco wins. And then in the bottom are Jasmine Kennedy and Georges, who are the two dancing queens of the season, and they lip sync to Etta James' version of "Something's Got a Hold on Me," mm-hmm. and I thought they did a great job. I think Georges did a better job than Jasmine, but RuPaul lets both of them stay. It's a double chante. I don't. This season seems really long. They've already had the first two episodes. No one went home because then they brought everyone back, and then we've already had an episode where there were no bottoms. So there was. So now there's. Now we have three episodes where no one went home. And then we have a fourth episode where no one goes home. Uh-huh. And we still have that damn golden ticket floating around. Yep. So that means someone else is going to get saved at some point.
1: It's a saga. Oh, uh, also Jasmine's uh, silhouette. Well, I thought she looked interesting, but she was kind of like a sexy Gumby. Watching okay, the runway, right the
0: runway theme was shoulder pads. Uh-huh. And I really like Jasmine's look. Georges looked like Selena mixed with... Prince, as she said. Prince. Sang. She looked fantastic, but she didn't have shoulder pads. Willow Pill also didn't have shoulder... Willow Pill looked like a character from Rugrats to me. It was cute, but... I, thought, I was thinking like SLC Punk. Oh. And then, yeah, I, I think... I thought Diabetti looked silly. She looked like something... What's that movie with Lori Petty with Tank Girl?
1: Yes, with Ice T. Yes, I thought she looked like something from Tank Girl. I hated her stomp down the runway. I just want a, a, a hook to come out and yank her at <laughs> the stage, like I can.
0: Like Showtime with the Apollo, like uh, poor thing. Um, okay, so that's uh, Drag Race uh, for UK versus the world.
1: Oh, and but this, I, w- I will say Bosco. You know that that is somebody who is very smart and creative, and just the way that. You know in the confessional speaks about everybody else it's like oh you know very kind mm-hmm. and, and like curious like and praises other people uh you know kind of like raja o'hara was when she returned as well it's just like the graciousness of it is very appealing
0: well and humble too because he talks about like how he works as a barista yeah. and i
1: yeah i he just seems very we're, authentic where
0: and... is like i deserve this but I think that's also people who are confident in in their skill set. Like, this is what I do, yeah. and it is what it is. And if
1: you don't like it, you don't like it. And but...
0: there's no need to tear other people down just because I don't excel in this thing. Or, But yeah, so far, he's doing great. Okay, so episode five of UK versus The World. The main challenge was for the queens to record a verse to RuPaul's song, London. I don't even remember. Yeah. And the there are only five. I don't even remember how many queens are left. Uh, it was bag of chips, blue hydrangea. Oh, there are five. Oh, yes, bag of chips, blue hydrangea, Janie
1: JK, and then um, Juju B. This is why I blocked it because they they eliminated the one I liked that I've come to like the most. So, the oh, I forgot Mohart, but in
0: the top are Mo Hart and Jujubee. I do think they did a good job. Sure. I do think they did a good job. I thought, for the runway, the theme was work of art. I thought they looked great as well. Jujubee yeah. Jujube looked beautiful.
1: But so wasn't really... Well, she, the others like, were taking an artist and riffing on their style. And she was more. Of a, she did an interpretation of like
0: a piece, like a, an architectural structure. Yes. I thought that was kind of weak, but she looked fantastic. So Juju B wins the lip sync against um, Mo Hart.
1: And she chooses Janie Jacquet to go home. Who I thought looked the best in that war that Marilyn Warhol but
0: yeah but you know she she didn't
1: want to send home bag of chips or blue hydrangea see this is why like we we are so indoctrinated with fake ass shit because you had bag of chips clearly manipulating them with these teary things about how much yeah. she respects them and loves them and wants to compete alongside them when somebody with the dignity of like Jenny Jakes says you know is not going to stoop to that level and then the reactions are like oh she doesn't want it enough you know I think Bag of Chips should go home. She clearly doesn't want to do what is
0: asked of her. She's like, and then also it's like if you're so, she just, likes to say how she's like so famous and she's being funny, but it's like if, if you don't want to compete and like alter the way you do things, then don't get on the show. And certainly don't think you're going to win. Well, right. But I, that being said, she is very funny and she is an inter a good entertainer. And to be honest, I feel like the person who should have gone home this episode is the person who won.
1: Jujubee, Jujubee yeah. should have
0: been sent home a while ago. But anyway, Janie J.K. is gone. So, so my, The top four yeah. are Bag of Chips, Blue Hydrangea, Hart, and Jujubee. And my interest is dwindling, dwindling, dwindling. Super dwindling. Who do you think will win? I think Blue should win. I think Blue should win. Yeah. Uh, uh, if Jujubee wins... I wouldn't be mad if Mohart wins. Uh, I think Mohart's done okay. But I think of all of them, Blue Hydrangea's been the most versatile and the most successful at, like, yeah. coming back and really showing, like, she's a very talented... Jujubee and Bag of Chips, the, we... Well, Bag of Chips is good at what she does, but it's very limiting, or limited, and then Jujubee, I just don't understand. She has a great personality, but I don't think she makes for good TV. No. So, I'm so confused, and her looks have not been that great. I get, but, you know, when you're, avail- <coughs> when you're available... Oh, okay. Um, I need to step away for one minute, but you can talk about Blue of Moon, Oh God! No, no. I want to talk about well you're like here. What do you? Well, I can hear you talk about it for a minute. I just need a minute. I just need. I won't wash my hands. Go ahead. Blue of moon. Who wrote it? I can hear you. You
1: can hear. But yeah, you're not. Well, we were going to talk about things we were reading. What are you reading?
0: Well, why don't you start with what you're reading and I'll
1: tell you what I'm reading? I just... God, you're difficult. Uh, George Bataille, who is probably best known for his uh, piece of erotic literature, Story of the Eye, which I remember reading in college. Uh, he also... His unfinished novella when he died was Ma Mare, which was made into a pretty good NC-17 rated film with Isabelle Huppert, uh, also starring Louis Garrel, and we have a very nice poster for that uh, in our home. Uh, but I picked up a copy of uh, this book he wrote called Blue of Noon. It was written in 1935 and kind of uh, predates what would happen in Nazi-era Germany, but wasn't published until 1957. So it, it plays like this odd, uh, as it says, uh, set against the backdrop of Europe's slide into fascism. And it very much plays like this as this uh, sexually hedonistic, down-and-out character bounces back and forth between cities and end up, ends up in Barcelona before... Um, the world collapses around him. But uh, I love the quote on the back that says, it's a novel torn between identifying with history's victims and being seduced by the monstrous glamour of its terrible victors. <laughs> but what really drew me in is it said it's the 20th century's, one of the 20th century's greatest nihilist works. And I didn't really, I, I, I find George Bataille more of a hedonist than a nihilist because there's always the the promise of pleasure in what I've read of his. but. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's just you finished the book. Yeah, and then I just started. Uh, what are some things that popped out? It's just really this man's description as he is kind of slowly losing his mind and his relationship with three different women, one of whose name is Dirty. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's it's interesting. I think even the story behind the delayed publication is even more interesting with the the authors uh, afterward, but. Uh, yeah, George Bataille, is a. Is I collect some of his books. He has a essay, a set of essays about eroticism that I haven't read that I'm very interested in reading. I don't know if you missed it. You know, he wrote that film there, Mamere. I heard you. Okay, uh, and then yeah, I started Patricia Highsmith's Deep Water in anticipation of Adrian Lyne's upcoming remake, which is finally set. What about re- a shark? No, uh, it's set to be released in I think two weeks on Hulu with Ben Affleck. Uh, yeah, Adrian Lyne is a favorite of mine. He did Fatal Attraction, of course, and uh, Jacob's Ladder, Foxes, Flashdance, uh, but hasn't directed a film since Unfaithful, the 2002 film with Diane Lane, which, of course, is a... Who's the movie. man in Unfaithful? Uh, Richard Gere? Be- Richard Gere and Halle Berry's Baby Daddy. Uh, oh, I've seen that movie. Yeah, it's great, but that's also... A re- I think I've seen that movie with my brother. Really? So, yeah, I mean, this is 20 years ago.
0: Yeah, I think we were sitting at the condo and... He, like, he was there with me. That's probably the... That's so weird. I, I don't think I've ever
1: watched a movie with him besides that one. I said Unfaithful. Um, yeah, so Adrian... Wow, La- weird. Well, you know, that's a remake of a Claude Chabrol film starring Stéphane Audron, uh, which I had a movie night back when we lived in West Hollywood for, An uh, Unfaithful Wife. I think it's 1969. What? Nothing. Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So, films released we didn't cover... There aren't many. The, uh, the Lucy and Desi doc.
1: Well, we watched it late, but... Uh, we watched
0: it late, and then you still want to record a video about it. I thought it. it
1: was really well done. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. I had avoided it at Sundance, because I'm like, oh, Amy Poehler doing this. And, you know, right after being the Ricardos, am I interested in a two-and-a-half-hour doc about Lucy and Desi? It was two-and-a-half hours? Yeah. It didn't feel like that. It went by very quickly.
0: Yeah, I enjoyed it. I will say, uh, you know, it... Like two thirds of the Lucy and Desi doc, I feel like much of that encompasses what we saw in
1: being the Ricardos. Yes, but it was interesting because the Aaron Sorkin collapses a lot of things into, you know, which I wish I'd watched the documentary. So I think
0: they would complement each other well, and they're both available on Amazon Prime, right? I think so. Yeah. So I mean, I would recommend watching both together. But the highlight of this documentary is we get. Tapes mm-hmm. of Lucy and Desi talking. So it's mostly Lucy ball and Desi Arnez's voice mm-hmm. describing things. And then we get the visuals, which of course, there's a huge bank of <coughs> assets for these two uh, very popular entertainers. So It didn't feel wanting. It definitely felt very uh, comprehensive. We do get their daughter. Their daughter speaks a lot, yeah. She speaks a lot, which I didn't know that... I don't know that I needed, but... um,
1: I thought that was fine. You know, you can always tell when people... You read between the lines, right? Yeah. Uh, And she was closer to her dad. uh, But... uh, I found it really moving and I got kind of emotional a couple times strangely watching it. But, you know, anything about this powerful woman that, you know, kind of beat the odds and changed the landscape of our culture uh, through television. Well, uh, and I thought it was, I think it was
0: moving to see this woman talk or hear her talk about how when she chose to marry Desi, she wasn't thinking like, I'm this white woman marrying this brown man. Right. Right. She said she understood that there would be some complications, but it was—it really wasn't... She wasn't preoccupied by it. So I just felt like she fell in love with this man and did what her heart told her to do. And then I don't think I fully realized that for the first, like, eight years of their marriage, he wasn't around. He was on tour, yeah. Because he was on tour and serving in the military. Yeah. So, and then her getting pregnant, losing a baby, getting pregnant again, all of that. Like, just... What a fascinating life. And then I I guess I didn't realize how quickly. It's a very short period of time where they became super popular and then bought the studio and
1: then merged with. They bought RKO. Yeah. And and then she merged with Paramount. Right. After she did Control. Yeah. That
0: didn't. That's not a very long period. It's like a five year period from when I Love Lucy started popping to when they bought RKO. Well, it's so
1: surreal now because we live very close to. Yeah. Where they were. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: true. But, um, yeah, no. You say you still want to make a video, so I guess we can. But
1: um, other releases are... That Leighton Meester film. then The... Who I haven't thought of. The Weekend Away. Years. Yeah, and this Amanda Knox-style thriller we didn't watch. We might. Maybe. Sure. I don't know.
0: Okay, moving on to things we watched for fun. I did want to mention we watched an episode... Netflix has a series called Worst Roommate Ever. Which is Blumhouse produced? I believe they're okay. affiliated. Yeah, which is such a weird... That, well, I guess it works because the title of the series caught my attention. And then I heard a snippet of episode one, which is called Call Me Grandma. Mm-hmm. So you and I
1: watched it. It was fascinating. Yeah. It was riveting.
0: And I'm not going to review it except to say it's about a woman who... Is a serial killer. She's a serial killer and she basically, I mean, she had a long history of conning people and, and her, her gig was that she would sedate them with like a date rape type drug yep. and then steal all their shit. And it was men and women. But at the, at the later part, which she was masquerading as like a senior citizen when she was only like 50 because she looked kind of dowdy and she fooled all these people into saying that to thinking she ran like a group home for the elderly. Mm-hmm. So she was taking in all of these old people and basically slowly killing them by like drugging them and then just continually collecting their social security. Yeah, and she buried them in the backyard. And buried them in her damn backyard in Sacramento. Um <laughs> she got caught because there was a social worker who had sent a client to her and this social worker was, you know, I guess doing her due diligence and really keeping up with one of her clients and kept pushing like there's yeah. something not right. My my guy wouldn't just disappear. Right. And that was the beginning of the end of this lady getting caught.
1: But I would recommend... I felt bad for that social worker because she felt guilty. Uh, she seemed like she cared about what she did. Well, she, she felt she, guilty. You know, she pushed him into this home. But you know, how would she know? Uh, well,
0: she pushed him because he said he wanted to be somewhere. And then he did tell her he liked it. Yeah. The, the missing man suffered from schizophrenia and he had received a lot of like ECT treatments. So, you know, it's difficult to tell sometimes that people are just agreeing with you or they're actually making conscious, you know, decisions. So, you know, you can't blame the social worker. And I just I did feel for her that she felt so guilty.
1: Uh, it reminded me of this, <laughs> uh, a horror hag movie. From the '70s, starring Ruth Gordon and Geraldine Page, called "Whatever Happened to Aunt Alice?" Oh, that no, reminds me. Whoever slew Auntie Rue? No. Yeah, well, that's I Shelley mean... Winters. But, I know. Uh, yeah, you know, they, we had that cycle of horror-hag movies, but that that one's worth watching, especially for those, you know, two supremely great actresses. But Ruth Gordon is looking for her friend, and Geraldine Page runs this farm where she's burying old women she kills on her property.
0: Moving on, you watched "Passion Fish."
1: Yeah, I think I watched, I finished it right before we filmed last week's podcast, but we didn't really get to talk about it, but, you know, it was a really moving film, 1992. John Sayles, who... Alfre Woodard is in it. Alfre Woodard's... I think I've seen Passion Fish. Okay, Alfre Woodard's fantastic in it. It is this, you know, she's a sober nurse that's taking care of Mary McDonnell, who's, that was her second Oscar nod, and uh, who's this soap opera star who suffers is hit by a taxi and she becomes paraplegic uh, but you know really great role you know, John Sayles who wrote a lot of, he wrote Alligator for instance he wrote a lot of screenplays to fund his own projects as I mentioned last week and he has such a fantastic body of work especially for women um, but I I put it on because I was I felt like watching Elfre Woodard and I would you know she's Oscar nominated for oh, what's the film it's from like 1983 it's called Cross Creek I think um Mary Steenburgen's the star, and I, I found it. But then I was like, "Do I want to watch a biography on Marjorie Keenan Rawlings, the woman who wrote *The Yearling*? Or do I want to watch *Passion Fish*?" So, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's why. Moving on, uh, you watched *Malice*. Yes, which I waited for years to watch. But you're an Alec Baldwin fan, so mm-hmm. we, we own a copy of it. Uh, young Nicole Kidman and uh, Bill Pullman. You know, it satisfies that craving of this 1990s thriller. It has all kinds of tangents. There's a serial killer played by Tobin Bell who, quill, who kills Goop, a.k.a. Gwyneth Paltrow, as a young teenager. Uh, there, there are a lot of things to love in it. Uh, but but it, it, it did feel also a little bit all over the place. Directed by Harold Becker. Uh, who Did he do Geely? I want to say he did Gigli. Uh Interesting. And, of course, Alec Baldwin's famous uh, I'm God speech. Uh, is a lot of fun. Mm. But yeah, I did I did quite like it. Lastly, Days of Wine and Roses. Another film I've owned for years and years and years. Be, I I put it on a couple mornings ago. I think you were in and out uh of consciousness. No, of the no. R- of the room I was watching it in. Thank you. <laughs> uh, God. Uh it, it you know, Jack Lemmon and Lee Remick is a pair of uh alcoholics and he becomes sober and she doesn't want to. Uh, and it's it basically plays like a series of vignettes uh, strung together, almost, of their, their, their alcoholism. But it, it was interesting. Jack Lemmon, I think, really gives a great performance. Uh, it was directed by Blake Edwards, who, you know, was married to Julie Andrews, uh, did most of the, if not all, of the early Pink Panther films, uh, as well as Victor Victoria. I, I, I don't know if Edwards was maybe the best person for this, but... Uh, Yeah, it's worth a watch. All right, moving on to projects of interest.
0: I was going to... Well, you can start first. Uh, Fetty Alvarez.
1: Fetty, okay. So, you know, Noah Hawkins is uh, creating an alien television series. Oh. Of which Sigourney Weaver is not involved. Uh, cause you know, why include the most interesting part of that universe? And and then it was just announced, I think two days ago that Fetty Alvarez, who directed the Evil Dead remake and that film Don't Breathe, uh, with Ridley Scott producing is making his own separate alien film. Okay. Which again, has nothing to do with Ripley, Sigourney Weaver, uh, which whatever, I think I'm just tired. I'm just tired. So I'm not really even interested in that, but... Uh, and then something, I captained. Uh Yeah, Matteo Gironi, uh, Italian director, has announced, commenced a new project called I Captain. I don't know anything about it, but uh, Gironi, you know, is uh, now a can darling, uh, thanks to films like Gamora, uh, Tale of Tales, Dogman. Uh, so he's automatically somebody of interest. Lastly, uh, I wanted to talk about the Madonna biopic. With all these actresses trying out.
0: Oh, my God. Well, you know, so then... Madonna, th- this was like early last year. She was posting on social media a lot with her and Diablo Cody writing this screenplay. Who she fired. Who reports, yes. And then Diablo Cody, I guess, quit or was fired. Or whatever, yeah. And then now there's a new screenwriter who I don't know named Aaron Wilson. Uh, okay. But they're in the- I was reading that the Hollywood Reporter says that they're casting for the lead and like some of the people who have... Uh, who are interested, who have already auditioned, are Florence Pugh, Julia Garner, Sydney Sweeney, Mm -hmm. Barbie Ferreira, I don't even know who that is, Alexa Demi, Odessa Young, Emma Laird, BB Rexa. I know that's a singer, Yeah. and then Sky Ferreira, I don't know any of these people. Well, Um, Julia Garner's from Ozark. From Ozark. Oh, yeah, I finished the latest bit of Ozark. Oh, we didn't talk about Ozark. Well, you only finished half of the season. Well, it's... Because the other part is... It, that shit is getting over the top. Yeah, we probably should have talked about that. Maybe next week. I don't know. Okay. But um, I was reading that the audition process is pretty intense because they have to like do all this choreography and um, like performances, which I think is funny because, of course, Madonna would want people to uh, perform her shit better than she can. I, don't know. I can only imagine how difficult Madonna is particularly with something like choosing who's going to play her.
1: I would say... uh, It's not going to be worth it. I think this will be a big deal. I think it's going to be a big deal, but I feel like whoever that lead actress is, this could be uh, Showgirl's Elizabeth Banks killer. Or Mommy
0: Dearest. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, Faye Dunaway. I I don't know how good of an idea it's going to be. Well, I think in 2022... I don't know that it would hurt an actor's career
0: because this will obviously get like dis- major distribution and it'll have a great soundtrack because obviously they're going to have all the Madonna shit. Mm. So I don't think that whomever plays it, it will hurt their career, but I think this could be a shit show. Yeah. And then I was reading that basically the film sort of culminates with the Blonde Ambition tour, like the 1990. Okay. Which kind of makes sense because sure. that was sort of the
1: peak of her well popularity and we're we're still very clear of when she started to alter how she looks, so
0: yeah, and and
1: then of course, if they keep going, they'd have to probably cast
0: someone else or it would look crazy, so i i I'm into it being sort of contained all right, moving on with well, there's one entry in the obituary section, good old Johnny Brown passed away, Johnny Brown, I know mainly as playing the superintendent Bookman on good times uh. It wasn't announced how he passed, but he was in his eighties. Um, yeah, I have fond memories of, of course, good times, which I right. watched every episode primarily because Janet Jackson's in it. But the, the show's great. Esther Roll is Florida Evans. Oh Jimmy yeah, Walker is t- yeah, JJ, see. Uh, and then of course Walona, well, played um, by, um, oh my god, how did I just forget her name uh, with the apostrophe in it too? Uh. Oh my god, we have to say her name. But anyway. Um, yeah, good old Bookman passed. I remember they would call him Buffalo Butt or Booger. Oh, Je- Jeanette Dubois. Yeah, Janet Dubois. Du she would call him Bookman or Booger. Um, and then I always remember the episode where he didn't have any money, so he was eating dog food. <laughs> but yeah, Bookman's gone. Funny
1: how dog food came up in several episodes of... Good Times. Good Times. Because the, the the actress that plays Aunt Song in Crooklyn, uh, isn't she feeding... Her family... Dog food dog dog as well. Food. Oh, God. All
0: right, but we can move on. So, the secret film today I chose. Uh-huh. And it was The Preacher's Wife. 1996. Directed by Penny Marshall. Yeah, it's a really Laverne and Shirley. Was she Laverne or Shirley? Uh, she was Laverne, right? Oh, I don't she know. She also directed, uh like, A League of Their Own. And- oh, yeah,
1: which is a favorite from my childhood. But uh, sh- this was between her films Renaissance Man, which I never saw. And... uh Is it Riding in Cars with Boys? Well, The Preacher's Wife stars Courtney
0: B. Vance, Denzeli Washington, and the late, great Whitney Houston.
1: And, you know, it's a remake. And it is a remake of a 1940s film. 1947, The Bishop's Wife, uh, which starred Cary Grant and Loretta Young, which I've never seen, never really cared for Loretta Young. uh, Directed by Henry Coster, who you have seen some works of Henry Coster, because I know you've seen Harvey, where Jimmy Stewart sees the imaginary rabbit. Oh, that sounds familiar. Which is kind of a magical movie, but uh, yeah, I've never seen The Bishop's Wife, but yeah. So The Preacher's Wife, I did not care for this movie. Same.
0: I think that it is poorly cast. I think it should have been updated
1: for the 90s. Well, ostensibly it is, right? But then the, the dynamics and the mechanics of everything, it feels like the 50s. Okay, let's
0: let's just okay, the basic story is Courtney B. Vance plays a reverend of a church. He's married to Whitney Houston. Whitney Houston's dad used to run this church, but he passed and now Courtney's taken over. But the church is struggling. Of course, they need more money. They always need more money. The church is breaking down. They're having to like shut down the after school programs, the children's programs, whatever. In the backdrop, there is this real estate developer played by Gregory Hines, who is like has this master plan community that he's being that's being advertised all over TV. And he's proposing that the church. Move to this new development. Which is not near where it currently is. No,
1: but in, he's also going to create it like a mega church. He's
0: going to create a mega church. There's going to be all these um, amenities and services, and people can live there and they'll have access to all new things. Okay. Well, Courtney prays to God to help him. And the next day, an angel shows up, played by Denzel Washington. And he tells Courtney, I'm here. You called for me. You were looking for a miracle. So here I am. Which I just think is so corny, like, you're a fucking reverend who tells everyone to have this blind faith in this religion, and this book, and then, like, someone comes saying, like, I heard your prayer, I'm here to help you, and he couldn't be more resistant. Mm -hmm. He's like, no, you're crazy, this is not, I think that's dumb, but anyway, Denzel's this angel, and I don't really know what he does, uh, except he sort of injects himself into everyone's life and makes it better. Well, there are a set of rules... There's a set of rules. The main one is that he can't do anything you could do yourself. Uh-huh. But then he does do, he does perform other little miracles, kind of. Um
1: y- Yeah, it's not
0: really. No, I, okay. So, ultimately, you know, of course it ends the way you would think in that the church gets to stay because we find out Gregory Hines Oh, another big problem I have with the film is Gregory Hines'
1: character is supposed to be like a villain, but he doesn't seem that villainous. He's not no, he's for the progression of the community. He's, he's
0: trying to progress, yeah, he's trying to develop the community and get people like move them up and out.
1: Yeah, it's not like this like some white developers coming in to gentrify and and
0: remove these people from their homes. He's trying to give them like nicer homes and give them more amenities and we find out that Gregory Hines' character actually owns the church yeah. because it was having problems and he took over the mortgage yeah. so it's like he's trying to help the church and he's he didn't even want to let everyone know that like actually I own this shit and I could kick you all out right. he was trying to find an alternative for them yeah. so I think that, the, that character is not well attenuated to what I'm supposed to think is happening because it seems like he's kind of the angel of the story <laughs> he's trying to help these dead people but ultimately, Denzel gets to Gregory Hines and shows him the light. So at the 11th hour, on Christmas Day, Gregory Hines tells Courtney B. Vance, like, call me on Monday. We can talk about the mortgage. Basically, I'm not going to tear down the church. You don't have to move.
1: Yes. So and keep your neighborhood in the dark ages. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Basically, y'all can't have Whole Foods so, and Starbucks. Like. So, okay. so what, well, you know, not that uh, progression should be measured in, you know, uh, consumer culture per se, but... Uh, it, no, it, but he gets... There's one scene where he's like, but I'm going to build tennis courts. And yeah. he's like, well, they don't want to play. And it's like... He's well, like, they don't play tennis. Well, they don't. Have, they haven't had the opportunity to. Yeah, maybe to. if
0: the community had tennis
1: courts and swimming pools that they felt were theirs, maybe they would. Like, you why know, would you not want them to have that? Like, the Williams sisters had to play in some, you know, dilapidated tennis court because that's all that was available to them. What if... You know, it? It to me, that this film really is a metaphor for what religion does is just keep keeps people in the dark yeah <laughs> okay i'm just gonna go through my notes
0: <clears throat> so we were reading because uh, during whitney's last interview with oprah was it her last or her second to last it's 2009 uh i think that was her second to last okay. interview. yeah yeah because she was re- in the really pretty brown dress and her last interview she said she looked good but she sounded really bad because she performed a song Anyway, in that second-to-last interview with Oprah, Whitney shared that during the filming of The Preacher's Wife, she was high every day. Yeah, she was taking something. Yeah. So, immediately, we see Whit- like the first scene with Whitney is she's singing, and I just thought, boy, Whitney stays sweaty. That lady was known for sweating, and I'm assuming... Yeah, when she
1: performs, yeah, yeah.
0: But But she's just standing there, so I wonder... <laughs> that was always a joke about Whitney, right? Everyone who plays her... In Drag Race Snatch Game, fucking Mad TV, anyone who ever does Whitney, you have to do the sweating. Sure. And I thought, damn, even in a damn movie, she's sweating.
1: Well, because she's working,
0: you know. That, that lady does... was standing there lip syncing. Why is she sweating? Oh, sure. I think okay. it's the drugs that make her sweat. But, um, okay. You know, Jennifer Lewis is like a very strong spice. Yes. She is a very strong spice. You don't want too much cardamom. You do not want too much Jennifer Lewis in your movie. <laughs> Well, I don't know. (coughs) Jackie's Jackie's back is pretty damn funny. Oh, I'm due to... You know what? We should actually... Do an episode of Jackie's, Jackie's back. Jackie's back is pretty good.
1: And she's front and center there. Yes,
0: but that's where she wants to be. Tandra. I, I think because she's front and center in Jackie's back, she tones it down a little bit sometimes. She
1: does, but it's... it's there like are highs and lows. Jennifer Lewis is like, you are not cutting any of this dialogue I have. I
0: think because Jennifer Lewis is a youth, is accustomed to playing a supporting character, she's developed this sort of way about her that's like, no matter what, you are going to hear me. Yep. She plays to the back of the room. All right. Yeah. Yes. ma'am. Okay. Hallelujah. Yeah. She's just so damn loud. But what's... So that's distracting. It's time to make the Christmas baskets. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yes. So... When she she, picks up the phone. Oh, uh, yes. (laughs) Hello? No. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So... (laughs) So it's weird because we have Jennifer Lewis...
1: We have Loretta Devine, mm-hmm. who are both so magnetic on screen. Yes, and t- and can do magic with the supporting part. That, like, if you're just reading that dialogue, like, what a throwaway part. But
0: yeah, if 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 I had to cast a movie, I would definitely be like, if I can get Jennifer Lewis and Loretta Devine, I would definitely find something to do with them because they definitely add a lot with very little.
1: Oh yeah, Loretta's introduction to Denzel, like that could have been flat as hell and she brings... She made it a lot. Like it's alive.
0: It's the scene where Denzel introduces himself because Loretta Divine is Courtney B. Vance's assistant. Mm-hmm. And then Denzel comes in saying he's there to assist so she thinks she's losing her job. And yes, that scene could have played very flat but Loretta is just... She does a lot with, with whatever little. she's given. Yeah. So I think the casting of those two ladies was fine except Jennifer Lewis is cast as Whitney Houston's mother and she's
1: only six years older and she is only six years older and she does not look no from, the, from older the, than Whitney Houston from the moment you see Jennifer Lewis in the pews like oh she looks really good yeah uh,
0: I just thought that was so weird but it, it's funny because Jennifer's character smokes a lot of
1: cigarettes <laughs> Like, I don't understand. Like,
0: in the house. <laughs> in the house. Like, preparing food, putting
1: food on the table with a cigarette in her hand. Yeah, it's like, what year is this? Right, But, I, but right. I guess the 90s, that was normal.
0: Okay. I always feel bad talking about children, but this little Do boy. You? Uh, well, you know, because they're just kids. But the little boy. Um, making his debut. Making his debit. Uh, what's his character's name? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. So, Justin Pierre Edmond. Mm-hmm. That little boy couldn't act. Nope. Mm-mm. He could not act. Bless his heart. Um, yeah. It was kind of crunchy when he was on screen. Like, oh, get Very, him off, get him off. Yeah. Okay, there's a scene where the they're in the church and Whitney is like working on like the Christmas production, like the Nativity, whatever musical number. And then Loretta Devine is downstairs in another room doing Bible study. And then we see the furnace in the basement or the boiler, like, about to explode.
1: Yeah, yeah. That
0: scene was fucking chaos.
1: It was. And it also was like, every time you saw the boiler, I'm like, oh, it's going to become Stephen King's The Mangler. (laughs) Uh,
0: I just... uh, I really just didn't like that these characters just seem so incompetent. Like like Courtney B. Vance doesn't know how to run this business of a church and then his wife seems to not know how to support him properly and then you have, like, Loretta Devine's in this room with these kids and you hear all this banging and it doesn't occur to you to stop what you're doing. I just, I really hated that scene. It was just pure chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so Whitney and Courtney B. Vance don't have any chemistry. No. And you said you also read that Whitney said that initially...
1: Whitney didn't want to do this... So I I read that Denzel initially wanted Julia Roberts. Oh, no. And then uh, when they thought they could get Whitney, they had to beg her for a while because she said that, one, she didn't want to look like a housewife, and two, she uh, didn't think... She she wasn't attracted to nice, kind men like Reverend Biggs. (laughs) And it is so obvious that...
0: I mean, you know, who knows... Her state of mind being under the influence, but Whitney and Courtney have zero
1: chemistry. They don't. And the fact that you have like the much more suave and, you know... I, I Courtney, Arguably more handsome. Arguably... Well, Courtney B. Vance is a handsome Courtney man. Courtney B. Vance
0: is a handsome man and, and he seems, you know, he seems like a great guy. But then you get Denzel in there. But then Denzel's characters... I don't know that I think he's so much more sexy than Courtney B. Vance, but like you said, he seems more suave. And Whitney's
1: response... And he has a little bit of swag. And Whitney's response... Yes, he has more swag. And Whitney's response to him... She seems to come a little bit more alive on screen, right?
0: So then it almost seems like is there going to, going to be like a romantic thing between? And then we find out in the very end that Denzel
1: did have romantic feelings for Whitney because his he has no backstory, but we learn very loosely that he used to be a human in thirty years ago and is glad to be back on Earth for an assignment, I guess. But but it's you know that's why these religious angelic theme movies. You know, you gave him all the biological uh, components of being a human, like eating pizza. So sexuality would also step in there Yeah, as what did well. he do
0: with his boner thinking about Whitney?
1: Yeah. Um,
0: but what I was going to say is Denzel's kind of creepy in this movie. He is. He's doing that Denzel cause thing. Because he does that Denzel thing where he kind of is like cock, like he cocks, tilts his head and looks at things sort of intently and...
1: Like he's going in for the kill. Yes,
0: and then knowing that there there is some chemistry between Denzel and Whitney, like that they he seems like he likes her. I thought it was a little uh, creepy. Okay, more cringy scenes. So, there, Whitney and her husband Courtney are supposed to go to like a blues club or a jazz club, which is so
1: awkward because it's orchestrated by Denzel without either of those two communicating. Right. And then ultimately, Courtney
0: says, I can't go. Why don't you take her, Denzel? So Denzel and Whitney go to this blues club. First of all, the music that's playing at this jazz club is like...
1: Ele- what did we say it was? Elevator like, Christmas it jazz. It was like
0: elevator Christmas music. And then people are dancing to it, which seems so awkward. Then all of a sudden, Lionel Richie pops up. And then, you know, it's fun to see him. Because that, thats I think that's right when he got his new face. So he looks good. <laughs> he looks good. And he is like telling Whitney, I haven't seen you in so long. Like, why don't you get up and sing? And we'll talk about the singing later, but Whitney gets up and sings a song and then her and Denzel, have a great night. They come home late. Courtney B. Vance gets upset that she took, like they went to the place where they proposed.
1: Yeah, he's so bothered by that. He's so bothered
0: by it, but it's like she invited you, you didn't want to go and then you told her to go with old boy. Like, this seems dumb.
1: And all they did was talk about you. uh... (laughs) Another plot
0: point is that Reverend Courtney uh, B. Vance is trying to help, like, a a community member, this young black man. He, like, he gets arrested for, like, armed robbery, but he didn't do it. And when he first shows up in court, Courtney B. Vance's character doesn't really speak up. But then now he feels inspired. So on, like, the sentencing date or whatever he shows up in the courtroom and that was so damn crunchy. It's he bad. just walks in and shouting in. at the judge talking about well I serve a higher whatever court than you. Higher court than you so I'm going to talk and ultimately gets the boy out of going to jail. It's so that dumb. was so it's stupid. It's so dumb.
1: It's not in reality. Just like when they come back from the jazz club and it's like in the real world Denzel would be cuckolding Courtney B Vance.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it almost seems like that. Um, okay, I have one main point I want to get to, but another one is just, oh, um, just knowing that Whitney was like high during the filming of this. There's a scene where she has to pour hot chocolate. Oh, yes. <laughs> and that lady is pouring hot chocolate, and you can see all the hot chocolate spilling all over the <laughs> it place. It is, it's going everywhere. And they didn't even try to refilm it. Nope. It nope. was just like, well, then they cut to a different take with her holding the tray. the tray, and then there's
1: nothing on it. But just like there's a scene where she's talking about she's not going to let her kid eat sugar cereal. It was like you both can't be hopped up Yeah you both can't be y'all jittery Um, Okay
0: my final note is I just think the story feels dated It, It feels like something that would be in the 50s Like First of all Hearing Whitney You know of course you get Whitney Houston In your movie in the 90s And you're going to have her sing So then we hear her singing And her voice is not 100% It's more like 75% she still sounds she sounds you know Whitney has 75% still sounds better than most people but it's not Whitney as we really know her so it's like you have this woman singing in a way that just doesn't match her personality because she seems kind of like this meek housewife with you know like the way she's dressed and her hair and her attitude about how her husband's behaving but then when she sings it's like oh Mm-hmm. You have a little something to you, mm-hmm. so I don't think that worked well. Well, at just all.
1: just like how she always is very well put together in this, and then the nightclub scene where she comes descends from the stairs. You know that should be where where it's like, oh, this woman is is hiding herself because she feels right, neglected. but neglected. It,
0: but it's like she always looks she looks good in everything. Exactly, it doesn't play right because Whitney looks great the moment we see her. So then her having her transformation to go out is just like, oh, well, she's wearing like a tighter. She's wearing a tight black dress, but she's also wearing very tight clothes when in the beginning when she's mm-hmm. tucking her son in. So we can see that she has this like unnatural body mm-hmm. and that she's unnaturally beautiful. Mm-hmm. So then you just put her in like a French twist with a black dress, and we're supposed to be wowed. Like, no, it's Whitney Houston on screen right. looking fantastic. I think it should have been. If the role of Whitney and Courtney's character should have been played by younger actors, and they should have, to make it more modern, they should have leaned into these y- this younger married couple taking over the dad's church and they're sort of torn between the secular world and their religious beliefs and that's creating tension and then this angel comes and tries to show them how they can sort of walk the line between the two and still serve their God and be happy, whatever. And then I just, yeah, I I, I think making Gregory Hines' character, in my opinion, seem like, I felt like he was more helpful than Denzel Washington. Yeah, I agree. They should have made him like, uh, just the straight-up villain,
1: then, who, in the end, sees the air of his ways. I, he's definitely underutilized in this film, too, because Gregory Hines is great, you know? And Yeah, Gregory Hines is great. So, the cast is spectacular,
0: but he yes, just missed cast.
1: Yes. Like, it, it just... I just don't... Of course... Well, and then we didn't even mention the lawyer, uh, Sherry Headley, Oh, that's Coming right, to America. Coming to America. But it was just funny, because you were just watching a black
0: blasphemy... Oh, I want to <laughs> shout out... Um, there's a YouTube channel, I believe, called All Deaf, and I watch it a lot. Um, they do a lot of, like, roasting. It's all comedy. But they have a series called Black Blasphemy, where they have a panel of black people who are usually comedians making, like, blasphemous statements. Towards the black community. Towards the black community, like, white people's Thanksgiving food is better <laughs> than then, black people's food. And then the person on the... on um, up, up, And then one of them has to guess who, who said, said that it, shit. Yeah. <laughs> Or like, Friday's not a funny movie. Yeah, yeah. Or <laughs> but anyway, they had... Oh, one of the black blasphemy statements was, um, I've never seen Coming to America. Yeah.
1: But the the two that had seen it were... <laughs> they didn't know... They, they were like, Lisa, we don't know that actress's name. From well, Coming her to name America. is... Sherry Headley. So and she shout out had, to Sherry and Headley. She had nothing to do in The Preacher's Wife. I did learn, looking her up though, uh, She's there's a sequel to Belly. Oh, and it's called... Belly 2. I forget that. Millionaire Boys Club, I think. Oh, and there's another movie we might have to review called Bitch... Bitch Lover. Bitch Lovin' or Bitch... Yeah, it's from, it's from 2020. <laughs> what a terrible movie. That title. was random.
0: Well, we're running out of time, but that uh, was The Preacher's Wife. What else do you want to say about I it? I
1: think that Mo Hart should have played Courtney B. Vance in Snatch Game. He could have, although
0: Billy Porter is a more popular reference.
1: But uh, and then there's uh, the, the finale is Denzel asks God to, I guess, craft a. To- uh, an image of himself as the angel on their Christmas tree. Oh, yeah. And I said, that, that shit looks like Papa Legba. Oh, my God. <laughs> there, but anyway, I would give... Oh, the, and Sissy Houston.
0: Sissy Houston is in the background looking like... Mugging, she, yeah.
1: <laughs> mugging like she did when she was singing with Aretha a few years ago. So that's entertaining. Um, notably, this was nominated for Best Score uh, from Hans Zimmer, who... Eh, I I, I did not th- Han Zimmer is a very notable composer. I really like his score in Chelsea. Whitney's
0: rendition of "Joy to the World" is one of my favorites. Sure. Uh, definitely one of my favorite Christmas songs. And then, uh, you know, I don't think the music's that great. I
1: don't think so either. Uh, but it was lensed by Miroslav Andrzej, a Czech uh, cinematographer who uh, I believe shot *A League of Their Own* for Penny Marshall, but is uh, best known, I think, uh, for shooting several Miloš Forman films. Uh, um, what would you, oh, *Hair*? What would you give this film? ah uh, two I would give it two out of five
0: um you have like two minutes left I have nothing more to say
1: oh well this week what's going on uh films as in what's oh we, we got a couple of Chris is, April is a Chris Pine double feature month oh because we just watched The Contractor and I saw All the Old Knives this week um I do like Chris Pine yeah we have a Zac Efron thriller I <laughs> what think gonna, yeah that's what I was, didn't know that yeah it's called Gold that's well I'll week. definitely watch that um, uh, another Ryan Reynolds comedy, Ugh. The Adam Project. Well, he's my friend, so I'll watch it. And I think something that sounds interesting. I think it's a horror film called Ultrasound. That will I'll be this week about a demonic fetus. I'm sure it'll be something pregnancy related. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
0: yeah, just more movies. Uh-huh. Uh No major events coming
1: up. I don't think so.
0: No, no. We might we might go to the Eagle tonight.
1: Yes. What's next week? Noted Nasty Gay Bar. The Lost City. That Sandra Bullock movie. That screening might be... That's coming up too. Oh.
0: All right. Well, uh, I'll bid you adieu. Ta-ta.
1: Bye.